0: hi I'm Mark Thompson here for jank always fun to be in on the conversation and as usual really interesting show and one of the things I love about this show we'll get right into it is that we talk about money and politics and it's clearly, the issue confronting this country. I mean, you have to open up the hood on any number of things. But if you could get somehow the money out of our political process, you do so much to increase the purity of the people's voice in the elections. But that said, what actually happens with that money? This is a story about that. And that's really what I love about this particular part of the conversation. Dave Leventhal joins us. and. Uh, Dave is the editor at large at the Center for Public Integrity. Uh, Dave, welcome to the conversation.
1: Hey, Mark. Good to be with you.
0: I I love that you're here, as I say, because you know we talk about money in politics, but now let's really just put a face on this that has a little more detail. Uh, one of the things that money does is that moneyed interests uh, pursue very various legislative agendas, and they actually pursue legislation that they write. Those moneyed interests write. Take us through some of that process, will you?
1: Well, sure, we've seen this at the local, the state, and the federal level, and in fact, uh, we just put forth a project last year in conjunction with USA Today and the Arizona Republic that showed that various special interests, in fact, hundreds upon hundreds of special interests, will oftentimes get behind what we like to call model legislation. Now, what is model legislation? Model legislation, very simply, are bills that are not written by lawmakers. They're not written by your elected representatives, they're written by special interests. That may be a corporate special interest, in some cases a union special interest. But be that what it may, uh, these are copycat bills. They they are quite literally cut and pasted, and they might be introduced in one, two, 10, 20, even 50 states with effectively verbatim language. So instead of getting something from your local representatives, you're getting something from your national special interest that could have profound effects on the way that your locality is actually being run and being governed.
0: Stop. This is this is remarkable, because what you're seeing is your local legislator's face on it, your le- local legislator's name on it. Uh, but that's just almost a shell company for what is legislation that is written by these moneyed interests.
1: Well, in a way, it's outsourcing of the legislative process. Instead of having that elected lawmaker or his or her staff writing the bill, you're having something that effectively is being given to that legislator and then being introduced through the legislative process. So in many cases, it's unclear to the public that this is even happening. And we now have a tracker tool that you can go and you can search for yourself. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, if you have a special Interest yourself uh, in an issue, a topic, you can type that in. It might be marijuana, it might be uh, taxes, it could be any topic under the political sun. And you can find out if that bill is being introduced in your, say, home state of Kansas and also Idaho and Ohio and Florida and California and everywhere else around the country. It's something that you couldn't do before and you can do now.
0: I I mean, I, I just wanna, I don't wanna move on from this too quickly because this is a really cool thing you're talking about. There's an algorithm that looks at language, and you can actually see that this language in so many of these different bills is the same, and in so doing, you can identify where these moneyed interests have spread that bill or that legislation across the country.
1: Well, a, a labor of love from a, an incredible data journalist, uh, Pratik Rabala, at the Center for Public Integrity, who uh, spearheaded the creation of this. So yes, exactly as you describe it, you can go and you can search for yourself to determine if there is copycat legislation being introduced in your state, or if there's copycat legislation, again, on a topic that you care about being introduced all throughout the country, and who's behind that as well.
0: You know, this... When I saw it, made me think of like a Sinclair Broadcasting, where they buy up a bunch of stations across the country, and then they they crank out these uh, must runs, they call them, you know, pieces of news that really reflect opinion or a point of view without telling the audience that this is stuff that we put together and we've omitted key facts or whatever it may be. And that goes out to all the Sinclair stations it's run nationwide. This reminds me on a legislative basis of just that phenomenon.
1: Well, there are legislative engines, these copycat legislation engines that exist, probably one that would be familiar to most people is ALEC. Uh, ALEC is a group of uh, very conservative minded Entities that oftentimes will sponsor model legislation of this sort. So you see model legislation coming from the right from conservative sources for sure. Also too, it's something that has been used and utilized on the left, uh, albeit to a lesser degree. So both sides to some extent uh, are playing this game. And it uh, again, the reason we did this project, which included uh, a Numbers of articles uh, several dozen articles in addition to this tracker that we just talked about is so people can realize number one that this stuff exists but also to the effect on it and how it affects uh, just across the board. So many issues including a lot of pocketbook issues that affect people's bottom lines and the way that you live your life food cars, you name it, model legislation, there's good chance that uh, there's something out there that uh, exactly hits on one of those topics.
0: In a moment, I wanna get to the election, but before we leave this topic, I'm glad you mentioned that you know both sides do it to an extent. Uh, we see it more on the right uh, and through the GOP. But uh, this is what's good about your program about this sort of algorithm, as you can see. I mean, maybe it's legislation that you actually are okay with, but you can also see uh, some of the really disturbing legislation, the anti-Islamic uh, legislation that's passing uh, through these various legislative bodies. Uh, the anti—well, uh, uh, the uh, there's a car dealer piece of car dealer legislation that I was reading about that also seemed kind of uh, right. shall we say sketchy.
1: And we've talked to plenty of people who are, uh, if not supporters of the notion of model legislation will make the case that model legislation in and of itself is not inherently bad. It's not inherently evil. It's a technique, a tool, a political vehicle for uh, trying to propagate something that people believe in. Well, at its face that that might sound perfectly fine. Uh, The problem is when the public doesn't realize that legislation, again, as we just discussed, Isn't coming necessarily from lawmakers. It's coming from somewhere else, but has the imprimatur of a lawmaker, has their name on it, uh, has her name on it, and is going forward as uh, something that ultimately it really isn't.
0: That's the thing. You know, we think of this as. Uh, A process by which we elect officials that have shared with us their philosophy, their outlook, uh, those things that they feel are important, their priorities, if you will. And then to see that whole thing sort of subverted or undermined in this way, and and they just uh, get, in essence, an email that outlines the verbiage for the next piece of legislation, because they, in a sense, are taken hostage by big moneyed interests, that's disturbing. But uh, There's, There's
1: a reason we call lawmakers lawmakers, because they're supposed to make laws. So uh, the fact that, that that's not happening all the time uh, kind of undercuts the notion that they truly are the ones who are making those laws and passing those bills.
0: Now, on to uh, the election and the FEC, you know, Federal Election Commission. You did a great piece, I thought, about just this fact, which is that uh, Donald Trump, the FEC, critical, right, in, uh, in safeguarding elections. Tell everybody about the FEC, and then we'll talk about what's happening to it.
1: Well, in short, the Federal Election Commission was created in the ashes of Watergate. It was set up to be a civil law enforcement body that was going to enforce and regulate the nation's campaign's laws in a central bipartisan fashion. And also to take care of the, uh, the transparency element of campaign finance, making sure that the public, that the press, everyone had access to information coming from campaigns about how much money they're raising, how much money they're spending, if they go into debt, or any other financial consideration. So, 45 years later, though, the FEC is uh, not necessarily lived up to those lofty expectations that it was going to be a cop on the beat. And right now, Mark, as we speak right now, the uh, Federal Election Commission doesn't have enough commissioners to take care of that law enforcement component of its duty. It doesn't have a quorum. And until it gets one of at least four commissioners on the six commissioner body, The FEC is pretty much dead in the water when it comes to enforcing the nation's campaign finance
0: laws. And this was a deliberate act, was it not?
1: Well, it's a deliberate act in the sense that the president of the United States has to nominate federal election commission commissioners. The US Senate has to go ahead and improve those nominees. And Donald Trump has only put forward one person, a man by the name of Trey Trainer, whose nomination has since lapsed in the past couple of weeks. But we can blame to an extent Barack Obama and George W. Bush for this too, because both of them had opportunities themselves to inject new blood into the Federal Election Commission to, uh, to either appoint new commissioners, nominate new commissioners, or for that matter, fill the jobs of commissioners who have overstayed their terms. And this has been a habitual problem over the past many years for the FEC. Commissioners are only supposed to be there six years. But all the commissioners at one point in time not long ago had overstayed their terms. And then they began to fall away. They resigned, they went elsewhere. And now we only have three commissioners left. Uh, I've talked to two of those three who weren't able even to answer the question when I posed it to them as to whether they're willing to stay throughout 2020, not that there's a whole lot for them to do at this point. So things could get worse at the FEC before they get better, and they're pretty darn bleak right now.
0: Why would there be a, and we're running out of time here, I'm sorry, but I I do have to ask you. Why would there be an interest in sort of defanging the FEC from, as you suggest, sort of both parties? Why would you let something that seems such a, a critical part of the democratic process lapse like this?
1: Well, we focus in our story today at the Center for Public Integrity on one particular case uh, among 300 plus that we could have chosen from that uh, are, are not being taken care of cases that the FEC should be looking into. And, and that's one that involves Donald Trump himself. Uh, there is a complaint from Representative Bill a congressman from New Jersey. And he's basically saying, hey, look, FEC, you need to look into the way that Donald Trump is accounting for bills that he is receiving from municipal governments all across the country for police protection at his different campaign rallies. He's not doing it the right way. He's not accounting for it properly. That's the case that's being made. The FEC got back to him and said, well, uh, we can't do anything about it because we don't have enough commissioners to see this complaint through. And well, who's the person who would nominate FEC commissioners to give the FEC the ability to investigate that complaint? Donald Trump. So you can see right there that this is an issue, particularly when you have the person who is the subject to a complaint, the president of the United States, also responsible for nominating commissioners to the FEC, which is tasked with investigating those types of complaints.
0: It feels more like a banana republic every day in this country, just insanity. Uh, Dave Leventhal, love your stuff, Center for Public Integrity. The website is publicintegrity.org. Check it out, so much great stuff, so many terrific revelations. Thanks for spending time with us today.
1: Hey, my pleasure, have a great
0: night. See you, Dave. The conversation comes back, and some, uh, shall we say, some hard medicine about Pete Buttigieg. Next. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson here for Jenk. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now uh, we'll change gears and uh, talk about something that's really quite quite a revelation, and that's what's been going on in uh, Mayor Pete's hometown with his police force and with the racism that really underlies that police force. And this is all as a result of some investigative reporting from Jonathan Larson, and in conjunction with The, with the Root. And Jonathan Larson, welcome to the conversation, I appreciate you not only being here, but walking us through what is sort of a, an interesting, uh, complex, only in the sense that there are many instances of it, kind of investigation that you guys did.
2: Sure. So uh, thank you, Mark. Mike Harriet of The Root and I, we collaborated on this piece, which was specifically kind of narrowly focused on a group of 10 officers who signed letters back in 2014, addressed both to Buttigieg and other city agencies raising flags about racism within the police department. And I I should add that uh, I spoke to people back in April, I went to South Bend last April, and spoke to people about racism on the force. And even people who said, yes, they knew about racist cops, they, they also took pains to say that largely that is not the case with the police force. But the question obviously in the presidential race is, the racism that was there. What form did it take? And what did Pete Buttigieg do about it? And with Mike from The Root, he and I reached out to some of these officers and we have we were not able to find any indication that Buttigieg responded to them, that the, that the city responded to them in any official way saying, we want to hear about what's going on and we want to hear your thoughts about what's happening. And there were three additional officers, not even among those 10 signatories, who had filed EEOC complaints. Uh, there were lawsuits as well, and and the bottom line was that essentially, in the in the scope of this report, we weren't able to find anyone who Buddha Judge reached out to and said, um, "Tell me what you're experiencing, and let's see if we can get to the to the bottom of it."
0: No, in fact, it would seem that Buttigieg was concerned with sort of covering the whole thing up, spinning it, paying people off. I mean, talking about settlements, you know, and and, and oddly just dodging the entire thing. This involves the recordings that he uh, that, that that were out there that that document a sort of a underlying or overt, but it's you know behind the the curtain of uh, of what's going on, racism, uh, and yet he he ultimately claimed in the case of the tapes that he'd never heard them, and uh, in other words, uh, muddying the water. I suppose might be a way to uh, term his reaction.
2: Well, the reaction to our reporting has been less muddying the water than ignoring the stream. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I will say that you know the, the campaign has told us, and they will tell anyone who asks, that they did implement a number of measures over the years to try to address. Uh, Issues of racism within the police department. Obviously, whether those measures were sufficient, whether they were executed appropriately, that's a matter of some debate. But in in this specific case, uh, these officers individually reached out and, and didn't get a response. And as for the tapes, we reported back in September based on legal documents that the city has had, what was on the tapes. Now, there's no reason to think that Buttigieg is being anything less than honest when he says he has not heard what's on the tapes. But he has said, for instance, I don't know if I can legally even ask what's on the tapes. But in fact, his lawyers, lawyers acting on his behalf, both as the mayor and as an individual, did ask the woman who heard the, the tapes, who made the tapes because of what she heard on the police phone recordings. They did ask her multiple questions and she got answers. So the city has actually known, at least the legal department
0: and Judge is outside counsel. They've known for years what was on the tapes. Uh, the, just cuz we're talking about the tapes and people may or may not be really up to speed on it. I mean, the piece is really great and I hope that people will get up to speed on it. But let's go through, in the case of the tapes, just as we're talking about them, let's talk about what's on these tapes, why they are a radioactive part of this, this entire issue. So the tapes came to light
2: in March of 2012 when Buttigieg, three months into his mayoralty, demoted the city's first black chief, police chief who had been there for, since 2007. And the explanation he gave was that the chief was being investigated by the FBI for allegations of wiretapping his police officers, which was not untrue as far as it went, but there was more to the story. We haven't really had a full sense until recently of what more to the story was the woman who i alluded to earlier who made those record, who made the tapes from the phone recordings she said in her lawsuit she referred years ago to a, an apparent scheme to get rid of the chief we had we didn't have a sense of what that referred to and thanks to various court orders and judicial rulings she's not been allowed to speak publicly but the documents that we accessed back in september say lay out in her words she says She heard police officers talking about using Buttigieg's donors to get him to agree to get rid of the black police chief. The officers are also described as speaking in Ebonics when referring to the chief. And Buttigieg is said on in these documents to have agreed in June of 2011, six months before he even became mayor. To get rid of the chief, so that's that's been in those documents for years, and even after our our, I mean, obviously we reached out to the campaign for comment, um, but we got none on the substance of the documents, and he has not commented on that aspect of the reporting either. And I, I should add, and they will tell you, that the two donors I spoke with um, essentially denied. Uh, Denied having these conversations, one said, "I have no rec- knowledge of that," and then hung up, hung up on me. The other denied throwing fundraisers for Buddha Judge, and then did not respond when I emailed him a copy of a flyer for an invitation to a fundraiser that had his name on it.
0: The again, uh, the city settled with the chief uh, Boykins, and uh, and and that's that. And you can read more about the tapes and and really how the entire thing was handled. Uh, I wanna move on to something else because it's not just about that, it's really about an institutional racism within the department. And and boy, even if you just look at the numbers, it's sort of, they're on pretty thin ice when it comes to hiring and promoting black officers.
2: Yeah, so the the, the just the raw data are, are not great in terms of the record. And Buttigieg, I think to his credit, has acknowledged we couldn't get it done. But it's not just that diversity remained the same while he was mayor of the city. It, the, the proportion of black officers on the force, the force is about 240 people or, or so. And the proportion went from something like uh, uh, almost 30 black people on the force to barely a dozen, if I'm remembering correctly, or slightly more than yeah, that. Yeah, 15 black officers is where it
0: ended up, exactly. Thank you.
2: Yeah, roughly 6% of the force now is black, in a city where I believe the black population is
0: above one quarter of the total population. and. You know, it extends even beyond that. So those are the the numbers. But when it comes to promotions, and when it, you know you, you outline quite specifically, I'm thinking of the uh, the shift interview that ha- that is uh, undergone. You know, it comes to very simple promotions within the department. In you know, other words, just sort of these things that would almost be a pro forma administrative process. They take on the taint of a racism.
2: Well, we, Mike and I have talked about this and he actually did, I would, I would say, a little bit more of the legwork on that end of things than I did. But it, a point that Mike will make, I think, is that it doesn't have to be individual racism. The fact that the system doesn't seem at the time to have been sort of engineered to guard against that kind of thing means that it's a lot easier for sort of old boy network dynamics to drive the hiring process. And so in in an anecdote that Mike tells, I think this is what you're referring to. There was one black lieutenant who believed that there was an open lieutenant position on another shift, which would be a lateral position for him. Uh, He applied for it. None of the other eligible black officers applied out of solidarity with that lieutenant thinking we'll apply for his position once it opens up. But no one apparently told the black officers that there were actually three lieutenants positions. So they ended up all going to white officers and the the response was, well, none of the black officers applied. Yeah, they weren't in the loop. They didn't know the full scope of what was going to be available. So it, it was things like that. And one officer actually told me one of the ones who signed one of those letters he said to me that when that Pete Buttigieg set the department back years when he demoted Boykins because the improvements or at least some of the improvements that Boykins made were then rolled back. Now, he's had he, he spoke more favorably of the current chief, but the, the numbers still are what the numbers are.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if you actually get into the specifics here, it's, it's so damning and, and and humiliating the process by which many of these black officers applied for or were locked out of some of these, as you suggest, sort of lateral moves. But, but their basic complaints boil down to five things, as at least listed in your piece. White officers regularly got promotions, transfers, and positions that were not publicly advertised to black officers. That's what we've just detailed black officers were rarely promoted which is something we've also sort of alluded to white officers were selected to fill temporary positions when the departments black candidates applied for the permanent positions the white ones would already have an advantage because they'd already done the job i mean it's it's almost this bizarre catch 22 White officers would not back up black officers, this is the one I really wanted to get to. Back up black officers when they were in danger or needed help. White officers were rarely disciplined while black officers were disciplined very harshly. I think the backup example, you give one in your piece, it's chilling, honestly.
2: So this was a story that TYT actually broke over the summer, Uh, it concerns Ron Teachman, who was at the time then relatively new to the position of chief. Uh, He was meeting with some of his top ranking officers, including on one occasion outside the station house, outside the police headquarters with a black lieutenant. At one point, someone came in, reported there was an altercation outside involving a gun. Uh, that the two officers were not together when this came in. So the black officer went outside to address the situation. And the white chief did not come outside until after it was all over. And this was a point of real contention. The, the black activist, a reverend who first raised this complaint, told the city council that he went to Judge himself about it first. And did not feel like he was heard, and that's why it led to the city council hearing about it, and eventually it made its way to an Indiana State Police investigation. And the former, the former head of the uh, Board of Public Safety, which has oversight over the police, told us that that a, law, a city attorney claimed to have been fired by Buttigieg for failing to prevent the Indiana State Police investigation, um, and the. Indiana State Police ultimately released a report which was secret. And the president of the Board of Public Safety resigned over the way Buttigieg responded to the report. Buttigieg characterized it essentially as exonerating the chief. And we obtained a copy of the report's summary and additional material from the report, which contradict the way Buttigieg described it publicly at the time.
0: This is just great work from TYT and The Root. And Jonathan Larson, thank you for spending a few minutes with us. We've really just scratched the surface. People say that, but this truly is an instance in which you should go to TYT.com and read this piece. And in its detail, You know, I was never drunk on Pete Buttigieg for a second. But I know that there is this sort of media drunkenness around him. And and everyone owes it to themselves to, to take a look at this great reporting. Thanks, Jonathan Larson. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Uh, that's it for the conversation today. I'm, uh, oh, I'm on the podcast. Of course, it's called The Edge with Mark Thompson. There's a new episode, I think, going up later this week. And of course, I'm on uh, KGO Radio every day uh, from 10 to noon Pacific time. Uh, join us there at KGOradio.com. But my favorite thing in the world is spending some time here at TYT. So thank you for joining us today. And until next time, bye-bye.